I was much more frustrated over the mandates. And why was that? <laughs> because I was seeing families torn apart. The suicides in my hometown were so numerous that they stopped reporting them. Um, elderly people were dying by themselves in long-term care facilities and saying goodbye over iPads. My grandma is 94 years old and she was locked in her little apartment by herself for two years. And now that she can go out and do things, she's not healthy enough. She lost two years of her life. That is the voice of uh, Tamara Litch, who will, uh, and I think she is right now, continue testifying at the Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa. Um, but I listened to her as, uh, testimony on Thursday, and I found what she said pretty compelling, which when you are on the stand is what matters. Are you believable? Do you have credibility? And so listening to her, when you compare her to some of the bananas uh, that have been on, on uh, uh, taking the stand in the last little while, uh, she actually was quite believable. She was very empathetic. But she talked about what drove her to, to go into Ottawa and be part of this movement. And it was the loss of her job, her husband's job, the loss of uh, jobs in her industry, the suicides. And as she pointed out, the lack of empathy by those in charge in Ottawa. I was becoming increasingly alarmed listening to my prime minister call me a racist and say that I shouldn't be tolerated. I found his rhetoric to be incredibly divisive and I'm a, I'm a believer that if you are a leader of a country, you have to lead all of your people, even if you don't agree with them. I have the tears of thousands of Canadians on my shoulder who every day told me that we were bringing them hope. I saw little old ladies praying on their knees on the side of the road, and I saw little children holding signs saying, thank you for giving me back my future. That's just a little bit, a little taste of what she had to say. So again, wh whether you think she's a great actor, whether you hate her, like her, she was compelling to listen to. And I think people will listen. She didn't take credit uh, for starting the movement or being the leader. She felt the blame and the focus became her problem because she was in charge of the money when it started to come in. And she wasn't prepared for that stress because thousands, they had a target of like 100,000 and then it turned into 24 million. And it was stressful. She talks about the divisions within the power struggles and a lot of growing concerns about the views of Pat King, who, you know, Litch felt was making it about himself and basically said, don't be a part of it. It's not about you. But she continues today. She's, she's definitely worth listening to because we've all, also been hearing from other convoy members, including a guy named James Bowder. And I, I, don't, I don't know why he's on the stand, to be honest. He's, he's the guy that um, made the loony memorandum to overthrow the government. And, and there is a reason intelligence didn't, I think, isolate or point out this guy. He doesn't, he's lacking. He, he, he's not even believable. He's one of these busybodies who knows nothing, but clearly operates in his own utopia and is enjoying the attention. I, I don't think he should be taken seriously, but uh, certainly had some interesting things to say. So he did not present well. But nonetheless, I want to bring in Joanna Barron to this conversation, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Thank you so much. 
Pleasure to be here. So we've been hearing a lot from the convoy side uh, this time around. Last week it was the policing side. And my takeaway is that there was a ton of, it was so splintered and disorganized and unplanned. It's almost remarkable that the police couldn't get ahead of this thing from when you hear um, the testimony. But at the end of the day, Joanna, it comes down to, does any of this still justify the use of this act? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to hear from the convoy organizers and hear their perspective just to get the circumstances. But the focus is rightfully on the government and on whether the government reached the proper threshold, whether they needed to invoke the Emergencies Act, whether the situation could not have been dealt with under any other law in Canada. So I think their testimony can kind of flesh out some circumstances, but it can't really answer that. For that, we have to go back to what the policing witnesses have told us, which every branch of police from the RCMP to the OPS to the OPP said, we have not exhausted our legal tools. And we certainly haven't heard anything this week that, you know, we keep waiting to hear if there is some real, you know, national security threat that was lurking in the background that was undisclosed. We would have heard it by now. Right. And instead, what if we heard uh, an isolated bomb threat to, to the Ottawa Children's Hospital, which turned out to not be credible? We heard about a guy allegedly coming from New Brunswick with guns to attack Jim Watson, who was apprehended. There is always the threat, even today in Toronto at Queen's Park, you know, knock on wood, there's always the threat of a lone wolf mm. actor. That's just, you know, part of part of the game of protests. Um, but we haven't heard anything specific or credible. Um, and so I think, you know, the federal government is going to have a very difficult time um, making the case that under the very clear requirements of the Emergencies Act, it was justified. Yeah, I mean, there's always bananas in the crowd at these. It doesn't matter what side you're on. There's a banana in the crowd at every protest. And, but I look at this and it was I mean, we're not talking about sophisticated um, activists here. And I'm sure there were people in the crowd. But again, from what we're hearing, it's just almost uh, unfathomable how the police could not get ahead of this and, and take care of it. Some will say, though, Joanna, OK, let's take the fact that um, documents reveal that a member of Justin Trudeau's security team may have leaked the prime minister's schedules. We've heard reports where police um, were leaking information to the protesters that they were creating a security risk. Could that be seen as use of the power? Well, again, it, even if that's true, even if we take the case for the protests that they were possibly dangerous, they were po possibly, you know, risked on spilling into a sort of chaotic scenario, like even if we accept that at its highest, the question is, what tools did the government need in invoking the, this extraordinary instrument where they created new laws, froze people's bank accounts, um, gave them, gave the police the power right. of any Canada to stop any gathering like what did they need that they didn't have under ordinary criminal laws because the way that these that the you know that the protests ultimately were stopped were by very standard police tactics right kettling getting a bunch of cops in a yeah. line um, and so that really is the question that we have to focus on um, because that that is you know the purpose of the inquiry is to determine whether they were justified in going above and beyond even you know for example uh one of the big big frustrations of this whole commission is that Doug Ford hasn't uh, agreed to testify, and we can talk about that. Um, but oh, I'm sure he's busy these days. We, we could talk about Doug Ford probably all day at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I need another show for that. <laughs> but, 
you know, whatever we think of his decision, and certainly I understand from a political point of view, but, you know, history will go down that this extraordinary incident happened and the premier of Ontario couldn't didn't come and and say his piece. And I think that's really unfortunate, um, to be honest, because there's a huge missing puzzle piece here of what Doug Ford was thinking, because certainly there were tools that he had before we had to go to the literal nuclear option, which is the Federal Emergencies Act. Yeah, well, sadly, I mean, politicians today love, they all, at every level, apparently, love using the nuclear option, which is becoming a very dangerous habit. Having said all that, um, I mean, one of the big challenges here, as you know, is it's not a criminal or a civil trial. So there's no real challenging any of the narratives. You're not going to get that real push from the defense or whatever to, to, to poke through the holes in the story. So everyone's got their version of a story. And somewhere in there is the truth that this poor judge, and I don't envy him, is going to have to parse through. Yeah, well, it's true that this will have sort of an advisory effect only. Having said that, first of all, there is a court case that will issue a formal ruling on whether it was legally correct. That will be heard in January. Um, that the Canadian Constitution Foundation is involved in. And I have to assume that whatever Commissioner Rouleau's decision is will be highly influential on that case, just given the extraordinary amount of information we're being exposed to. Um so uh, I, I think it's still very meaningful, and you're right that Rouleau has his work cut out for him. It's a fire hose of information at oh this point. Oh, my God. <laughs> and on a really – I mean, normally judges can pick the date that they're going to table the report. He's got a fixed date. So I, I honestly – that would cause me to drink excessively, but I don't know what he'll do to get through it. But uh, nonetheless, it's a very big challenge he's got ahead of him. We'll keep watching. Joanna, thanks so much. Thanks, Alex. That's uh, Joanna Barron, who's with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. So they are all watching this very, very, very uh, closely. But there's no question this judge has got a huge, huge amount of work to do and get through all of this.